Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Empathy is a bit like authenticity, a term that is possibly overused on this podcast, and it's difficult to define. Women are often described as more empathetic leaders, and modern leadership theory now encourages us to lead with more empathy. But what does this really mean? And can you be too empathetic to the detriment of being a good leader? In this episode, I wanted to explore true empathy versus performative empathy and how both relate to running a team. Today's guest knows a lot about this subject. Amanda Rishworth was elected to the parliament at the age of 29. She has a Bachelor of Psychology from Flinders University and a Master's in Psychology from Adelaide University. She's practised as a psychologist delivering mental health care to her community. Today, Amanda is the Minister for Social Services, the portfolio which manages welfare payments to millions of Australians. In this episode, we explore how Amanda manages empathy with just getting the job done. Amanda Risworth, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. And happy International Women's Day, or week, as it really is these days. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me, Helen. And it is a really big week. Um, There's lots of events going on all week, but it's a really important time to stop, celebrate, but also look at where we've got to go into the future. So how do you spend the week? Well, this week I'll be spending it in Parliament. Um, So I hope with the passage of our first tranche of changes, improvements to paid parental leave. So that'll certainly be something worth celebrating. Um, But uh, also uh, there'll be a number of events on in Parliament House. But on Friday, there's a big, big breakfast in Adelaide in which Senator Penny Huang has hosted for a very long time. And I look forward to attending that. Do you despair, like I do, that there are just not enough men attending these events? Well, it is really great to get women together and celebrate because, of course, this is about celebrating women's achievements. It would be nice for men to share, you know, the goals, aspirations, and, of course, the responsibility in how we improve gender equality. So it would be nice to see a few more and I'd encourage any listening out there to go along because it's actually really encouraging uh, for many women if you're able to attend. Yeah, I mean, there's no issue turning up for World Pride events and yet when it comes to a room full of women for International Women's Day, the men look like they're a couple of kids at kindergarten holding their <laughs> each other's hands standing at the back of the room wondering whether they're invited. I'm like, we, we've got to move on from that. Absolutely. I mean, I can imagine, especially at this Adelaide breakfast where there's like thousands of women, it could be a little intimidating (laughs) uh, walking into that room. But look, there's events happening all around the country. And so get along, enjoy it. It's uh, a really, really important time. 
There's no doubt there's something about Penny Wong that is intimidating. So I, I, can, I, I can take your point. <laughs> All in a good way, of course. Um, you have background in psychology. What made you make the leap from psychology to politics? Look, that's a really excellent question because I get asked a lot about that. Um, a lot of people sort of say they are completely different jobs, but actually they're not. Um, I was working as a psychologist and one of the frustrating things is when you work as a psychologist, you can help an individual improve their lives, you can work with them, um, but then you've got another person and another person lining up waiting to see you. And so one of the things that became evident to me is that if I wanted to help more people, then by changing public policy, by uh, investing in programs or changing things for whole communities, that I could help a lot of people at once. So uh, a lot of people think that they're very different, but I see them both very much as helping professions. But for me, politics really gave the attraction of making a more widespread difference. And uh, I loved working as a psychologist, but to be able to help more people with one decision or one thing that you do um, uh, really attracted me to politics. It is, though, sometimes like banging your head against a brick wall in politics. Um, every now and again, you crash on through. But when you do crash on through, making that difference is incredibly rewarding. So empathy must be very much part of your everyday experience because as Minister for Social Services, you administer billions of dollars of welfare payments to Australians. Tell me, in your own words, what your job actually entails. Yeah, so the payment section of what the government provides, that really important safety net for those people that might have found themselves without a job, they've retired with not enough superannuation, so they go on the pension, whether it's the disability support pension, all the rules around that uh, is is part of my job. And so I've got to understand um, the rules around that and make sure that that's fit for purpose. Um, it's always hard because there's always limited budgets, et cetera. But that is really important. And one of the things I've come to this portfolio is I'm not going to demonise someone that is on income support because we've seen that play out on front pages of papers and uh, it's just not fair. There is a, a safety net here in Australia. And we need to make sure it's fit for purpose. And that's that's part of my job. But I also am responsible for leading the government in a number of other areas that um, very much can be difficult areas. One is family and domestic and sexual violence. Very difficult space and an area we need to address. And I'm very much with my state and territory colleagues have made a commitment to address that um, and, and a real, a lot of effort. But also um, disabilities. Um, so supporting uh, Australians with disability, not the NDIS, that's Minister Shorten's role, but um, the rest of the area. And I think that's such an important area because it goes to the heart of inclusion. How do we create an inclusive society that we're not just attack on thing for someone with a with a disability, but how do we make sure that society is much more inclusive? So it doesn't matter whether you're able-bodied or you might have a communication, a, a different way of communicating, that society is inclusive. So that, that's also part of my role. One of the impressions that I have of your brand of politics is that you are most interested and focused on the most disadvantaged do you think that's a fair characterization of the way you 
carry out your political obligations? Yeah, look, I certainly am very much focused on uh, those that are most disadvantaged. But I see government not just about um, support, but enabling. And I, I think if you think of the word enabling, governments have a role. So I'm not this governments get out of my way. Um, I see governments not getting in the way either. It is a real sense of enabling people. And so that obviously um, has a role for our most disadvantaged in the country, but it also is relevant to people that have other struggles, whether that is um, uh, young people having struggles, whether that's in mental health. might not be. Uh, they might not come from the most disadvantaged cohort, but they need a government to enable them. And so I really see an interventionist role of, of government, but not in one that gets in the way or causes more difficulty, but really lifts people up and enables them. And when you take that lens to what you do, um, there's no doubt that those that face the most disadvantage, you know, really do need government to help them and, and lift them up. How would you describe your leadership style in the, in, in the community that you represent? Yeah, look, my leadership style has always been one that's been very connected. Being connected to my local electorate, for example, has always been incredibly important to me. So being accessible, uh, listening, um, understanding and being part of the community and working collaboratively on solutions, I think that has always been the way that I've led and always the, the way that I see that you get the most out of people. There's just no point in lecturing people or not actually paying attention to them. So for me, I've always led in a very collaborative style. I've always led uh, with a style of connection as well. I think that's that's just so important. And I have to say, people have really responded to that. The Prime Minister said um, a few times now that he has been underestimated all his life. Do you relate to that in any way? I do relate to that. Um, I think back to, uh, I think it was uh, in year six or seven, I think the teacher told my mum that I might not get very far in high school. Um, I'm not sure what led to that. So I I do think from time to time people have been surprised. Um, I was pre-selected for a, a marginal seat and I think a lot of people thought that I would just see out the term of the Rudd and Gillard government and 15 years later, I'm still there with a margin of uh, about 16%. So um, so I do think there was, there's been a lot of people that have underestimated me, but I think um, over time they're learning not to. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. And um, that's right. It's a very marginal seat, a very tough one to win, and uh, you have been there a long time. What characteristics do you need in life, therefore, to push through in a situation where you are underestimated? Well, look, I think it's all in the doing. It's demonstrating to people that you can get a job done. And I think that's really important. I think also uh, making sure that you deliver on what you say you're going to do. I think there's a lot of, you know, can be a lot of rhetoric and a lot of, you know, dare I say, promises made, um, you know, in politics, but but not just, you know, I'm not talking about the big election um, promises, but you know, when you're talking with individuals, you know, it's easy just to promise them the world and and not deliver. So I've always been very focused on 
doing what I said I would do. And whether that's just following up, for example, um, a a tree that's fallen down in someone's street, um, you know, it seems very minor, but if I've said I'm going to follow that up, I will follow that up. And I think um, following through on what you say by the doing um, is really important. I'll come to empathy because I do want to understand that. But um, I imagine there's a lot of advantages as well in being underestimated. Um, Has there been a time in your career or life where it's really played to your advantage? You know, we've got a bit of a tall poppy syndrome here in Australia. And so, you know, from times if you're underestimated, um, you you don't become the target of of riffing that down. So I definitely think that uh, that tall poppy syndrome can make you a target. Um, It's not that I agree with it. I think being underestimated means that you are able to not be the target and just get on with your job. And that that's not just in politics. That's across the board, I think. Yeah, like if you think about Penny Wong, for example, I mean, incredible career, but she's a, such a huge name and presence that with that comes a downside. Uh, I think for what it's worth being underestimated is um, a, very, a very positive thing. And um, the Prime Minister is an example of that. Let's talk about empathy. Um, I, I feel like it's a word that is massively overused and women are constantly referred to as having stronger soft skills and they show more empathy. Um, what do you hear when someone says, I'm an empathetic leader? Well, when I hear that, um, what I think it, it should mean is that you're able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. So, I think sometimes empathy does get confused with sympathy. And being sympathetic is is great. It, it, you know, you feel sad or upset for someone, but it's not real empathy. Empathy is about putting yourself in someone's shoes. So to be an empathetic leader, you need to be able to suspend your own views for a moment in time, suspend your at times very strong perspective on the world and try and put yourself in someone else's shoes. That's actually a lot harder to do than people say it is. And so I think sometimes for me, a really empathetic leader is not just to show sympathy, but try and understand someone else's perspective to help them inform their decision making. I have a number of members on my team that are extremely empathetic. Um, And that means in a practical sense that it's actually difficult for them to do the job some days because they feel just too greatly the pain of either a colleague or a family friend or even a news story. Um, That strikes me as a a tough characteristic to have as a leader. Do you feel that sometimes? Look, I think while empathy does sometimes make you feel very strongly and want to act and want to do something... I think sometimes it might be confused with indecision. So I'm very conscious that uh, you can be very empathetic, but it shouldn't be confused with or or leads to indecision. Because as a leader, I do believe you can be empathetic and decisive, but that, that can be the trap that people fall into. If you're constantly just feeling and constantly thinking about from someone else's perspective, 
that gets in the way of making the final decision because as leaders, you do have to be decisive. In my role, I'm making decisions on a daily basis. I try and think about it from different people's perspectives. Um, Often there's competing perspectives as well. What you can't let those competing perspectives lead to is indecision. And that's where I think the key is, is being decisive as a leader uh, while understanding and being empathetic is is critically important once you've weighed up all the different points of view. So I want to go to that because you're the Minister for Social Services, right? So you do see and hear some incredible cases. How does that impact you? Look, it does very much impact me because I do feel responsible for at times, difficult situations that people are in. Even if it's not directly responsible, you feel the responsibility that you should be able to help. Um, And so that at times does make you feel, you know, like you need to take action. I like to channel that and look at what I can do to make a difference. Comes back to that, what actions can I take? What can I do to actually make a difference because if you get stuck in just, I feel sad, this awful situation, I call it a bit of hand-wringing, then nothing's going to get better. So it's about channeling that feeling, that perspective to try and do something. Knowing that you can't fix everything and accepting that, I mean, I think that is really uh, very, very important, um, is that sort of acceptance that you can't do anything or can't do everything, sorry. But really looking at what can you do and getting some level of I've done everything I can to try and improve these things. And so that's how I've approached it is channeling that sort of that that feeling to actually action. And I think that's that's really important. Do you ever worry that, um, and this is something I was only talking to one of my colleagues the other day, we're doing a podcast on family violence and we're doing hundreds of hours of interviews with people who've had you know, very, very difficult stories to tell and experiences about the impact on the reporting on that. And I was talking to a colleague about how some of us respond differently. So I can do a new story of that magnitude and I can park it um, and I can do the next one and I can do the next one again. Some people can't. It affects them too greatly. Do you see some of that in your role and in people that you work with that it just that they can't move past the sadness of a particular um, circumstance easily. Yeah, look, I I have seen that. I I am someone that is able to, as long as I've been able to lead to some action, do something, you know, about the situation, then that allows me to resolve it. And um, and I guess that's why I like politics, because you get to do stuff. You get to you you get to try and help. Um, But I do see that in in people becoming overwhelmed. And I think certainly my my previous career as a psychologist and in the helping environment, there are a lot of people attracted because they do really want to help, but they do find um, the stories, the emotion paralyzing. And I think that is really difficult. I I think often that does contribute to burnout as well. Um, And it's about getting those techniques from time to time. I mean, I must admit, I was saying before that, you know, I find uh, looking at some, you know, mindless shopping on the (laughs) the internet uh, before I go to bed at night, you know, as a way to kind of um, 
I guess disassociate. I, I, I don't mean disassociate in a way without feelings, but to separate clear, probably. Clear your yeah. mind, yeah. Um, probably separate is probably a, a, a better word to yep. use. Um, but I, I do see where people cannot leave it behind. The other thing I see, and I'm very conscious of this, I see people that the separation, that the urge to constantly separate from this leads the too much the other way. And that the desire to, you know, not feel all those emotions leads to sometimes callousness, sometimes um, a kind of uh, disregard and, and turning off of empathy. Even if they had empathy at the beginning, um, without being off to manage it, actually turn that off. And I am very conscious that I don't want to develop a tin ear because it, you know, turn off from those cases, put everyone in the same boat, go, oh, because that can be really dangerous on the other side as well. Um, and so I'm very conscious of checking myself around that, um, around sort of that that disconnect and, and try and check out because I, I really think sometimes you you stop listening to feedback, you stop empathising, you stop listening to those other voices that help you make good decisions. And I, I, I do think that happens from time to time as well. Yeah, I think about the immigration debate in that context. I feel like a lot of people at the heart of the immigration debate um, found it easier to forget that there were people who were trying to escape horrific circumstances, um, whatever you position on on that debate. Um, Jacinda Ardern is like the pinup for being an empathetic leader What are your thoughts on the way she led? Yeah, look, I do think she demonstrated some moments that demonstrated empathy. And, of course, after that horrific mass shooting, uh, she she was there. But I think it wasn't just empathy. She turned up. And I think, for me, it was seeing her go to difficult places with, with people that were really hurting and share that with them. Not, I don't know if that's just empathy. I think it's more than that. It, it's it's um, almost like it's turning up at the right time and making sure that you're there when people need you. And knowing the right thing to say and the, right, and the right thing to do. I mean, she had a gift for that. Absolutely. Um, and yet in a way it was the thing in the end that people struggled with because there was a lot of empathy but there were a lot of policy decisions that in the end disappointed her um, constituents. That, look, and I think that's right in saying that once again, when you set expectations, it, you, you've got to deliver on them. And that that is a big challenge. Um, and I think when you demonstrate empathy, the person receiving it may feel that you completely agree with me. So if I empathise with you, I, I might not completely agree with you, but I'm trying to understand it from your perspective. And I think that is the challenge in politics is is empathy because person B over there um, could be just, uh, I could empathise with them on, a, on the same issue from a different perspective. So I think it's about being able to really understand from people's different point of view. It doesn't mean you agree with those points of view, um, but you understand them. And I think that that is pretty fundamental. Yeah, that's excellent advice. Um, so do you think that there is still a different expectation on women to be empathetic than there is for men to be? 
I do. I think that women are expected to be empathetic, but I do think sometimes that's correlated with being weak. And I think uh, men are often not expected to be empathetic. And if they do show empathy, they are considered weak as well. So I do think there's a different expectation of how much empathy each gender has to show. But I do think it's probably more of a challenge for men at times, because if they show empathy, then actually um, that challenges the perception that they're not strong leaders, probably even more than women at times. So what advice do you have for young future leaders in this country uh, listening to this podcast today? Well, first, um, don't trust the inner voice that says that someone else can do it better than you. Um, I've heard that voice lots of times. Um, The assumption that people can do it better than you is often not right. So don't listen to that voice. Listen to the voice in your head that directs you in an area of passion directs you in an area of purpose and strive for that. And I think you may be at times told you're a bit pushy. You might be times told that, you know, wait your turn. Um, Don't listen to those voices either. How often have you been told you're a bit pushy? A few times, (laughs) a few times I've been told that. And, you know, I think that, you know, that just comes with men don't get told that, women get told that much more frequently. Um, so I do think that's important. But I've li- I've had that voice in my head many times, assuming people were, were, were better than me um, or could do it better. And look, you know, I've learned to actually push that voice out. I uh, want to finish by just asking you, because it is International Women's Day, if you had a magic wand and you could have whatever you wanted as a female leader in this country to change the lives of women, what would you do? Oh, that's such a a hard (laughs) one. Um, But one of the things I think is create a society and, you know, this is not just what politicians can do, but create a society where when a baby was born, people would ask, is mum or dad having the first three months off? Is mum or dad having the second three months off? You know, if we... Uh, hopefully we don't have another pandemic, but it's not just assumed that mum will stay home and do the homeschooling. Um, That when the next ABS census comes out, that the home duties are equally shared between partners. I mean, that's for me that we have a a true equal division of, of, you know, paid work, unpaid work, that that the burden is equally um, shared. Because we know if that happens, then many of the other issues that result, whether that is violence against women, whether that is women's economic inequality, whether it's the super gap, a lot, if, if we have a society where those um, questions, those roles aren't assumed, then we will actually um, solve many of the other issues. So I know that's a very broad answer. That's a great answer. <laughs> but um, I really, that's what I would really like to see that, you know, when my husband takes the the, the first 12 months off, um, both times we had babies, um, for people not to be surprised and say what a great daddy was, where I'm not sure they were saying that to the mum that was taking the, the, the 12 months off. That's the type of attitude change I'm really keen to see. Amanda, thank you very much for joining us. 
This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.